0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, 11,500 members of the Writers Guild are on strike against the film, TV, and streaming companies. With picket lines up in LA and New York, Josh Gondelman will explain. But first, progressives and Biden what is to be done about 2024? Bhaskar Sunkara will comment in a minute. Maybe you heard the news Joe Biden is running for re election. Many of our friends are worried about his decision. For comment, we turn to Bhaskar Sunkara. He's president of the nation founding editor of Jacobin, and author of the book, The Socialist Manifesto. He's also been a columnist for the Guardian US edition, and he's written for the New York Times, Vox, and the Washington Post. Bhaskar, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, our goal is to make sure Donald Trump does not become president again, or any other Republican. Joe Biden is running. Are you supporting him? I'm not supporting
1: uh, Joe Biden for president. You know, if there's a left wing, if there's a progressive challenge to him in the primary that's that's serious, that is that is looking to build a base, I'll support that challenge. But I will be voting for whoever ends up the winner of the Democratic primary, as long as they're ready to oppose a reactionary uh, Republican party.
0: Well, Joe Biden of course, is an incumbent, and incumbents usually win. Joe Biden beat a sitting president in an election less than three years ago by 7 million votes. He'll be running against the same guy this time, it looks like. So he ought to be able to win, but a lot of our friends are worried about him and and wonder if there's an alternative. First of all, because he's old. If he wins, he'll be 86 at the end of his second term by far the oldest president ever don't you think he's probably too old to serve another full term
1: no I don't think that's the main strike against Biden I think there's a lot of speculation about his cognitive skills about his energy his commitment to the job and I don't I don't think that's a line of criticism the left should be pursuing against him we should be looking at how after a promising start to his administration after saying he had new deal sized ambitions how he's uh, walked back and obviously he doesn't have both houses of of congress he's facing a lot of barriers he's facing republican obstructionism he's facing a divided party But Biden has not used his bully pulpit to, one, defend entitlement programs, or two, to present a vision of a different America, a pro-worker, United States. It seemed like there was some promise early on, especially when Bernie, it seemed like, was his closest outside partner in his administration. I I think a lot of that has receded, and I think that's where we should criticize Biden. Uh, I, I just don't think we're on strong grounds to speculate about his health. And if anything, I think he's been more coherent in many of his recent speaking events, including the State of the Union this year, probably more active being out there and visible than he was in um, much of 2022 and 2021.
0: And there's another problem with biden's candidacy which is related to his age which is that if something does happen to him if he's incapacitated by a stroke or a heart attack uh, his vice president will assume the duties of president and his running mate again will be kamala harris kamala harris is not a successful or popular figure in american politics she she did enter the 2020 presidential primary but she got so little support, she withdrew before the first state voted. She got zero votes among Democrats when she ran for president three years ago. What kind of a problem or challenge is this right now? I mean, I
1: think she was a strange choice to begin with. Biden obviously backed himself into a corner. I mean, he, he won, pledged that he would have a, a woman vice president, which is fine, but there was a lot of other uh, qualified candidates. Harris, it seemed like, was a promising politician who just needed a shot. But for whatever reason, she was unable to really galvanize much support. Is she a drag on the ticket? Maybe. I'm not sure how much it matters uh, that that to have a vice president like Harris. Um, uh, maybe her debate performance will really play an outsized role just because of Biden's age. But in both cases, you know, these are incumbents. They should command the advantages of of having the White House bully pulpit. They should benefit from the fact the economy seems to be improving. They should benefit from the fact that people are very angry at the Republican Party, particularly for you know its campaign against abortion rights. You know, I, I think that Biden comes into this contest by default as the favorite. And I'm not sure his vice president really matters. And if Harris did became, become president because Biden is dies or is unable to uh, serve, yeah, I think we could expect something very similar in her presidency than we, we did from
0: a Biden uh, presidency. A couple of other potential problems. The news last week was that the UAW has refused to endorse Biden for re-election. UAW, of course, historically was the most powerful force in America pushing for social democratic uh, government. Today, they say they're concerned about Biden pushing the transition to electric vehicles. Is that a problem?
1: Well, I think it's a very bold decision. I think it is really well warranted. And if I'm not mistaken, they are withholding a endorsement until concerns are met. And this relates to the transition, in the auto industry to all electric vehicles and whether or not some of this transition would undermine the position of unionized workers and and the UAW. It wasn't a blanket. We're not going to endorse Biden under any circumstance. So there's still plenty of time between now and the election, I'm sure, um, especially given where a lot of their um, unionized uh, workers are in, in places like Michigan, Biden will be keen to have that endorsement, to have that the, the canvassing, the money, everything, everything else flowing his way. And hopefully they come to a agreement. I, I do think it's very significant for the labor movement in a good way, and that it, it reminds Democratic Party politicians that the support of labor is conditional, And of course, we're all very worried about the far right. We're very worried about what a return of Trump or potentially even worse, a uh, DeSantis administration would be like. But uh, I think it sends an important message. And the UAW, of course, was just recently uh, won over by a left wing leadership slate and has a lot of rank and file um, energy right now and might be gearing up for a potential uh, strike sometime later this year so i think it sets them up in a really good position to keep biden honest and especially if there's a strike it's very common for governments and of course you saw this with the rail strike to sell out center left governments to sell out their working class constituency in the name of labor peace to try to win over middle class voters and others who might be disrupted by strike actions. And with the potential for both a Teamsters strike and a UAW strike, um, you know, we'll be in a battle for public opinion. But we don't want Biden to weigh in on the uh, on the other side like he did with the uh, potential railroad worker strike.
0: Inside the Democratic Party, there's two announced uh, challengers to Biden, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. What do you think uh, this is the significance of their candidacies?
1: Well, I think the um, the Kennedy campaign is kind of a joke candidacy on fringe issues that no one should take uh, seriously. And I hope it doesn't, doesn't go well. Uh, Marianne Williamson has a serious program. She does not yet have a social base. So even though I respect her as a figure and I respect a lot of the issues she's uh, standing for, until it becomes clear to me that she's really tapping into and reaching an audience of working class people who are disaffected by the Biden administration, and until she starts to articulate um, an anti-establishment uh, kind of message to those 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 people that, that's resonating. It's not something that, you know, I, I personally think the left should be devoting its time to. But I, I definitely respect her right to run. I hope she gets her issues out. It seems like I know she's a um, viral star on TikTok and some other places and, and obviously reaching a young audience with that message. But I guess I consider it maybe the, the modern day or the 2023, 2024 corollary to the Dennis Kucinich runs, uh, which did actually matter. And, and actually put on the, the map certain things like single payer healthcare or or at least brought it to the forefront in those debates. Well,
0: now there's a, a new third party effort. No labels. Its founding chairman is Joe Lieberman. Uh, he's told interviews that his group believes the American people, quote, are so dissatisfied with the choice of Presidents Trump or Biden that they want a third alternative. Is this a serious uh, threat to Biden? I don't think it's a
1: threat. There's always a threat of these things happening, Like right? Bloomberg was really the one that people were worried about because he could throw so much money at it. But if you actually think about the last third party, that got enough votes to matter or the uh, last effort, it wasn't Nader, actually, it was um, a Ross Perot. And he was tapping into kind of a incohate, I wouldn't describe it as right wing, but incohate populist energy opposition to NAFTA, you know, really resonating uh, with people in some in some way. I don't see Joe Lieberman being the (laughs) tribune of the people in that way. I don't see even wealthier suburbs, you could say, in places like New York or Connecticut. Maybe you could imagine them picking over some voters. But even then, probably not, because one, I think abortion is going to be a very important issue in this election, especially in these suburban areas and the Republican Party and Trump has staked out such radical positions, it's really going to drive some of these middle class constituencies, you know, cement their place in the Democratic Party. And, you know, that's in the short term, a good thing. In the long term, you know, as you as you know, I've, I've always argued that there's some real risk in having a party trying a social democratic route to wealthy suburbs like Scarsdale, filled <laughs> with you know, middle class, upper middle class constituency that that doesn't want to pay more in taxes, like it kind of it, it is a big contradiction. But in, in the short term, Lieberman isn't going to tap into a kind of uh, everyday working person's sensibility, and isn't going to tap into that suburban vote. I just don't know where his support is
0: going to come from. And finally, who's next in line? Especially among the progressives, you know, the last two elections we've had Bernie being an astoundingly successful figure, uh, and Bernie is still pushing. I mean, just recently he had a opinion piece in the Guardian: "U.S. workers deserve a 32-hour working week." He's still pushing. He's not going to run anymore, but who else do we have in you know on the bench? Well, Bernie is still doing fantastic work, so obviously
1: he's pushing for the 32-hour. Work week, he was out today also demanding a $17 uh, minimum wage. There's a host of issues in which Bernie is really foregrounding these bread and butter universal concerns. It matters and it, it resonates with, with people. And i I don't think there's a real successor to Bernie at the national level, at least from the left, or maybe even period, because because Harris, obviously from the center, isn't isn't much of a um, an alternative to Biden either. But um, on the left, obviously, you know, Bernie is slightly older even than Biden. He has spawned a, a lot of um, uh, successors. Uh, people like AOC, um, other squad members, but none of them have really proven their electoral viability beyond deep blue districts, and, and I fear that none of them have learned the rhetorical lessons of of Bernie Sanders, um, which is kind of that plain spoken class struggle language that obviously is extremely left wing, but could kind of transcend. The American version of Democrat Republican partisanship in terms of um, his 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 ability to connect to people's needs and to express left wing egalitarian ideas in a way that seems like it's common sense. You saw that with the repetition of his campaigns. Everyone knows a Bernie Sanders speech basically from heart. Millionaires and billionaires are the enemy. We're the only industrialized country that doesn't have healthcare for all. We need to fix that. We need to fight corporate greed. You know, there's a whole host, you could have a, a Bernie Sanders, you know, bingo. It is very, <laughs> it's very easy to reconstruct one of his um speeches. So obviously, we have a lot of work to do on the left building a viable national candidate uh, getting both our, our candidates but our organizations ready to contest for power obviously part of that is is building a base in a left wing trade union movement that does have the power and resources to shift political tides so you saw that in a microcosm recently in Chicago where a left labor based coalition spearheaded by the Chicago Teachers Union with the help of other union locals like SEIU and Unite out there um, that we really able to make a uh, difference in that election that resonated with a base of a multiracial base of, of people on the, the left in Chicago. Uh, kind of recreated in a sense, the voting block of the Harold Washington base, the first black mayor of Chicago over 40 years ago, ran in a uh, on, on a left wing platform. And I think you're seeing what that labor core. Can mean and and what its absence in a city like New York, where the unions didn't take a risk and make a big intervention in the mayor race, has has led to kind of a uh, centrist at best mayor and and, and Eric Adams and in quite a progressive city. And you can imagine what these shifts in the labor movement and the UAW and the Teamsters and a host of other unions could mean if 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 that that power was tied to uh, real national uh, aspirations. And I, I think that's the future. And I think you need both. You need organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America and a host of other more single issue organizations uh, banded together. You need unions being willing to take risk and take um, uh, dangerous, in a sense, political stances. And you need that candidate recruitment to go from beyond candidates who could win at the local or even state level up to people who could win at at the federal level. And I think Bernie still has a role to play helping to cohere together that that new generation you know our revolution was supposed to be an effort in that direction and that obviously didn't didn't work out but um but there i still have hope but uh not a lot for 2024. it's it's hard to imagine who would be the the, the
0: challenger um uh, emerging baskar sunkara he's president of the nation he wrote about biden for the guardian thank you baskar thanks for having me honk if you like words that was one of the signs on the picket line outside paramount studios in hollywood last week Eleven thousand five hundred members of the writers guild are on strike picketing studios in los angeles and new york one of them is josh gondelman he's an emmy award-winning tv writer and a comedian he recently worked as head writer and executive producer for desus and marrow on showtime where the guests included Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama. He also uh, contributed to the final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And before that, he spent five years at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, where he won four Emmys, two Peabody Awards, and three WGA Awards. And he's a regular on the NPR News quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which has a weekly audience of six million people. We reached him today in new york city josh gondelman welcome to the show thank you oh my gosh thank you for the um the thorough introduction <laughs> i appreciate it well i understand you were on the picket line today was that outside nbc at 30 rock in mm-hmm. midtown manhattan today it was i was at silver cup studios in
2: queens where they were uh the plan was to shoot american horror story i got there in the kind of second wave of picketers, but they showed up starting at 5am and they saw a lot of solidarity from Teamsters and lighting riggers who, who didn't cross the picket line and, and shut down production while we were there on, on a lot of elements of the show, which was really inspiring to see that level of union solidarity across these other unions.
0: Well, in your piece on the strike for the nation, you describe yourself as someone who hates conflict, but loves fairness. Uh, how did this uh, lead you to the picket line this week?
2: I, I do. I hate conflict, but I love fairness. And the fairness, my love of fairness is winning out because all that we're asking for as writers is a, a fair chance at making a sustainable living in the industry that, that we, we're working in. Um, you know, our, the, the asks basically amount to two percent of these studios operating profits per year and uh we're it's just enough to so that people with shorter seasons and mini rooms right with people working um at maybe lower than their established rates for these these weeks before Uh, a show is even greenlit and also the way that residuals have changed as more and more shows move to streaming right and reuse and re-airing becomes kind of a different idea now that something can go on say Netflix and then be there for a year and that is one reuse essentially you know there's a one fee and and that doesn't account for success based on ratings at all um, because that's all in a black box still you know as far as we know like the Netflix's numbers so I'm out there for fairness despite my natural conflict-driven anxiety. And my dad texted me uh, yesterday when he read my piece for The Nation. And he said, well, what kind of look is it if I, if I, someone on the union leadership, right? I'm on the Writers Guild of America East Council. He said, what is, what's the look if someone on the council says that they they were anxious to join a picket line? And I said, Dad, I'm a comedy writer. If I wasn't anxious about something, people would think there's something wrong. <laughs>
0: of the writers voted in favor of the strike, really unprecedented. And the conditions that caused this strike have been percolating Mm -hmm. for years. I guess the biggest change, as you've said, is the rise of streaming and and Mm -hmm. the new companies that do it, the last writer's strike was in 2007 at that point Amazon and Apple were not making movies mm-hmm. and Netflix was a mail order DVD business and yeah. you were about 10 years old in 2007 <laughs> Yeah, let's say I
2: was 10 years old in 2007. <laughs> let's let's um let's keep my youthful appearances for when when I'm able to work in entertainment again when we're off the picket line. But yeah, it's a, it's a different world. Things have really changed in terms of how entertainment is distributed, right? Film and television. It's very different it's um it it's it's changed everything about how people are paid and how what a season of television is and we're not trying to fight against the way people are distributing TV we're just asking for while we're doing the same work we're asking for fair pay the same the same pay we're asking for if they're going to make but if we're going to make 10 episodes of a season of, of television and and that's going to be a writer's work for Half a year, a year, right? And and writers are going to be employed for shorter terms. We're just asking for those jobs to not disappear, for writers to not become a, a gig economy type profession. We we want it to be a sustainable career. In two thousand seven, the use of written material through new media channels was a big deal, but that was we're talking about clips posted on YouTube, and now it's the location for where people watch so much entertainment, and and so. I think that is, it is just the, the whole landscape has changed, and we're just trying to account for that and, and keep writing a sustainable profession.
0: You say the studios are trying to turn writing into a gig economy profession. Mm-hmm. The LA Times last week had a response from a studio spokesman. He pointed out that gig workers do not have a health plan, and they are also given tasks by an app. Your boss is not an app.
2: Not yet. That is a ridiculous point to make. Absolutely. They would. And people talk about AI as a potential generator for written material. I mean, AI could be a studio head, right? Like there's no, there's no way that, that it would be impossible. They just, people make too much money off that, like 12 people in the industry. But to go back a step to the first (laughs) point of there's no health fund, there's no pension fund for gig economy workers. The, the way that the studios have proposed kind of dismantling the protections for term employment, right? Being able to be employed for a minimum of a certain number of weeks. And and there's currently no minimum for comedy variety writers on streaming. So that really does exist. And now it's been proposed a, a day rate for comedy variety writers, um, <laughs> which means... Essentially, yes, there is a health and pension fund, but if you don't make enough money to earn into it, then it doesn't apply to you. And that's what they're also doing with minimums, right? Their proposal for minimum salary for late night, which does not exist at this point. There is no minimum salary that they have to pay comedy variety writers on streaming services. And they propose, they conceded that they would go up to the minimum for broadcast shows, which sounded great. But then they said, only if it has a budget of... Uh, $700,000 per episode. There are currently no comedy variety shows being made with a budget of $700,000 per episode. So basically they're saying, we'll give you the minimum if we spend more money than
0: anyone has ever spent <laughs> on these shows the traditional Hollywood studios, as opposed to the new streamers like Amazon and Apple and Netflix, the traditional studios say they are losing billions. Paramount last week announced it had a net loss of 1.1 billion in the first quarter this year. And after that announcement, Paramount stock fell 28%, even though the Paramount Plus streaming service now has more than 60 million subscribers. Disney is cutting five and a half billion dollars by laying off employees. Writers like you say they are having a tough time, but the CEOs of the old-time studios are are saying they are the ones having a a, a tough time. And what do you know about the suffering of studio CEOs? (laughs) Well, look, I uh, no disrespect to how stressful their job
2: must be, but you'd think that the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation would take a little of the sting out of that suffering, right? Eight studio heads combined, eight CEOs are making in a year, made in 2022, over $770 million, which is nearly twice what we are asking for total for all of our membership, right? That's what it would cost them is about $430 million per year, which still is only 2% of the operating profit for the studios, right? It sounds like a lot of money, but it's it's 2% of their profit. And it is about 60% of what they paid eight CEOs <laughs> period. And so that is just wild to me that they would first of all claim that they don't have money to pay writers. Clearly they have money to pay someone. And to me, when ceo compensation hits 40 million dollars you know executives are always saying like well if you don't want to do it we'll find someone who'll do it for cheaper you didn't think they couldn't offer these guys 20 million nobody (laughs) would have taken 20 million to do that job but i I want to go back to your first point a little bit that they're saying they're losing money right they're they're all uh, crying poverty at this point but they're all beholden to year over year, quarter over quarter growth for their shareholders, right? So it's not just enough that they're making, that they make money. They have to make more money than they've ever made every single year. And that is not a conducive to, first of all, creating good art, let's say. And even if you throw art out the window, it's not conducive to fair treatment of employees, right? It's not, it's not conducive to any kind of humane compensation or, or, or treatment. And every, every company says they're they're losing all, all this money. They're not profitable. They're posting, in 2021, these companies posted a total of about $28 billion in operating profit. They're not shifting to streaming because they think the technology is neat and they want a new gadget. <laughs> they're shifting into streaming and they're devouring each other, right? So there are only a few left because they think that's what will make them the most money in the long term. They're the ones spending this money. They're the ones choosing to produce all all this entertainment and all we're asking is a cut of of the profits commensurate with the work we do and its importance to the industry
0: i understand that artificial intelligence is also an issue uh, you want the studios to agree that they will only work with human beings i asked chat gpt <laughs> write a joke about the writers strike okay here's, here's what ChatGPT gpt came back with Why did the studios cross the picket line during the writer's strike? Answer, to get to the other screenplay. Okay. Are we laughing?
2: I'm I'm mostly just mortified by the concept. (laughs) (laughs) But it is our stance as a guild that writing work is done by writers who are people. So what we came to the table with was the proposal that AI not be allowed to generate scripts and not be able to generate underlying intellectual property that then writers could be hired to rewrite into script form for less money than it would you know than they would make to generate original ideas and the the studios came back with uh, a proposal of well once a year we'll talk about the state of the industry and what IP is. Not in the meantime, we'll agree to your rules. Just once a year, we'll update you on how thoroughly we've managed to uh, screw you through ChatGPT and other AI devices and and, and programs, you know? So I think it it was incredibly offensive, and it really jeopardizes writing as a profession.
0: Seems to me, though, the ChatGPT joke is not going to jeopardize writing no, as a profession. No, I
2: mean, it, fortunately, when you see the the output of these, of these algorithmic apps, right, which are basically, someone recently described them, and I wish I could credit who it was, but I think I heard it third-hand as like a plagiarism jukebox, because yes. it just pulls, it learns from other writing, and it pulls from other writing. So it's not like there's this genius robot brain. It just knows all the things that have been said and recombines them. So, like, even if that's all it is now and that's unfit for production or even unfit to use to make an outline or a draft, down the line, these programs will get more sophisticated. I don't think we want to get caught back footed saying, like, yeah, sure, this isn't a threat to us, even though, you know, that that joke isn't going to um, kill in front of a live crowd. It's not going <laughs> to work on a script. But eventually you know, I think as these, these things get more sophisticated, whether it's just more sophisticated plagiarism, we don't want to leave the door open for jobs to be outsourced to automation. And and that's the same as a lot of industries. This isn't just, you know, a lot of these issues feel like they're very writer specific, but, but the big overall idea here is that it's workers who do the work that these profits are based on standing up to these giant corporations and their their feeling of entitlement to all of the profits and not just a share based on the work that they do
0: this strike could go on for a long time the last strike in 2007 lasted a 100 days that's more Mm -hmm. than three months netflix says it has three months of new programming ready to go the strike before that was in 1988. That one lasted 153 days, 5 months. That would take us into September. I understand the WGA has a strike fund of something like 20 million dollars, so it seems like both sides are ready for a very long strike.
2: Yeah, I mean it it these problems are really serious. But I will point out the writers don't want to be on strike, right? We would like to be back to work. We'd be li- we'd like to be doing these jobs that, you know, I think are rightfully pointed out as dream jobs and and making a paycheck. We just can't agree to a deal that doesn't ensure for the future of writing as a profession and writers as, as human beings who do this work, right? And so I would love, and I think every person I've talked to on the picket line would love for this to be resolved as soon as possible. It's just that they haven't come to the table, the the studios, with a serious proposal that, that creates stability and security and helps ensure that for the future of writers and we're not going to negotiate against ourselves at this point like if they're not going to be serious we'll wait for them to be serious and and teamsters and and crew as are respecting the picket lines but it's not just uh who's shutting down production i mean we've seen people from amazon on the picket lines of us from the starbucks union from freelance musicians their students from cuny the city university of new york have been out and i think this is really a fight that's speaking to people across a lot of different industries because it is something that a lot of people are facing you know the specifics may be different from workplace to workplace from industry to industry but the broader themes i think are really resonating with people
0: and let me just add Hollywood Royalty is supporting the writers. Um, here in LA, where we record our show, mm-hmm. uh, Jay Leno brought donuts to the picket line outside Disney and yeah. Burbank. I read that Edie Falco refused to cross the picket line to promote her new series. Cynthia Nixon joined the picket line in Manhattan and said, without writers, there would be no television and there would be no film. So yeah. you got a lot of support. I mean, it's really wonderful to see that people with this level
2: of public profile that are doing it but people who are consistently marginalized by the industry historically—people of color, uh, members of the LGBTQIA community, women, um, writers from those backgrounds—are going to be the the people that feel it first when they're when the studio squeezes people, when the studios squeeze people, and make it harder to have a consistent career. When healthcare is harder to have, and um, and you know when you when it's harder to afford to have a family to wait the the months sometimes it takes between gigs, and I think that's like it's really unfair, and it's really something that we're trying to fight against as a guild, but okay. to go back a step, there's only so much you'll be able to do without writers in the interim. The fact that the late night shows are already off the air, you know that shows that like every day the work writers do is central to that production. you know, maybe Netflix has three months, but like Does NBC, does Disney, like maybe they do, maybe they don't, but them saying, oh, we can wait you out is just saying we're going to continue to try to make you take less than you deserve as long as we can hold out. For them to brag about how much they've stockpiled isn't impressive to me. It just shows like, yeah, they'll, they'll continue to try to treat us badly as long as they can afford it.
0: Josh Gondelman. You can read his piece about the strike, Writers Like Me Have Shut Down Hollywood, at thenation.com. Josh, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John, it was a pleasure. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.